0: This podcast is brought to you by GuestLogix, the leading global provider of ancillary-focused merchandising, payment, and business intelligence technology to the airline industry. To learn how GuestLogix can elevate your ancillary revenue potential, visit www.guestlogix.com. United Airlines has now had a new CEO at the helm for a week, but the same old questions remain. Can anybody take this airline to the top of the industry, or does it have structural issues nobody can solve? Make no mistake, United does have structural challenges. Every airline does. Delta is lacking an alliance partner in Asia. American's Dallas hub is facing serious competitive pressure now that Southwest can fly anywhere it wants from the airport across town. But how pervasive are United's challenges and can it overcome them and rejoin its peers in profitability? These are the questions we'll explore. Also, we'll look at why so-called hybrid airlines tend to struggle and take a look at a little airline that's almost leading the field in the airline game. The Airline Weekly Lounge is starting now. Thanks for joining us in the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President here at Airline Weekly, and joining me is the always affable Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner here at Airline Weekly. Uh, Always a pleasure, Jason. Uh, Looking at United, this week's cover story listed a number of mistakes United's management team made, and on the other hand, a number of reasons why this airline just might be harder to run than, say, Delta or American. I wanted to go deeper on a few aspects of this story, but before I do Let's first provide a little context to our discussion. It's important to understand to what degree United is underperforming its peers. So I pulled some numbers for United and Delta. These are full-year operating margins. Um, operating margin is a pretty good way to compare profitability for airlines of different sizes. So starting in 2012, Delta's operating margin was 7.2%. United's was 37
1: Okay, so roughly half.
0: In 2013, Delta's 9.4% bested United's 4.6%. Slightly
1: less than half in that case. And in
0: 2014, Delta 13.1%, United 7.2%. Okay,
1: so yeah, just just a bit more than half, but same idea. So that's
0: three bad years, anyway you slice it. At least in terms of performance.
1: Yeah, put some move pretty much down toward the bottom of the U.S. industry. U.S. Airlines doing pretty well in general, but United down there generally with Virgin America toward the bottom of the list.
0: But moving to 2015 with two quarters in the books, United has roughly matched Delta. Now, granted, that was because Delta lost a lot of money on bad fuel hedges and unhedged American beat them both. But even if you set all that aside, United has closed the gap somewhat. Things are not too bad at United. It is, after all, coming off its best quarterly profit in the company's history. So, is it possible United just needs more time and a little more distance from its merger?
1: Well, that's part of it, Jason. And in fact, it's already, as you said, in some ways begun to turn the corner financially, as you mentioned just there, and operationally too. I mean, this is an airline that was an absolute operational mess a few years ago when it was busy trying to integrate its passenger service systems and you know you just had people missing flights not getting their upgrades and and you know it's on time performance and lost bags and everything that was all off the charts far worse than all its competitors uh, it's still worse than average but not nearly as unreliable as it was back then And so if it can continue doing that, uh, yeah, you know, there's no reason why uh, when you're when when your comps are are something so bad, why you can't improve. And in fact, you mentioned new CEO. Hey, timing sometimes is everything. And and somebody who's coming into a situation where things are already in in sort of an unnoticed way beginning to improve uh, has a great opportunity, uh, you know. On the other hand, as you mentioned, as we discussed in depth in our coverage story this week, no question, there are structural issues at United. Things that you know you can go back to the 80s and 90s, and this was an airline that often lagged its peers. Uh, that tells you that it is an airline that, in some ways, uh, has some difficulties that a new CEO isn't going to very quickly be able to fix. If they correct the operations problems they've had
0: and if they correct their labor or not maybe not correct, but if they improve their labor relations, would that change things or is it always going to be a matter of real estate? When I say real estate, I mean hubs.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the key question when we talk about structural issues. One of those issues we're talking about is, uh, yeah, exactly just where uh, their hubs are. Uh, you know, they have hubs in uh, really big metro areas with, with a lot of you know, wealthy traffic bases uh, and that's good. Uh, on the other hand, they don't dominate their hub cities in the same way that certainly Delta does in places like Atlanta, of course, also Minneapolis and others, uh, or that American does in a few places, you know, notably Charlotte, but also Philadelphia. Uh, United, in most cases, if it does do- dominate an airport, the airport is not the only airport in town. Uh, you know, in a place like San Francisco, let's say, other Bay Area airports, uh, or it's just at a very competitive airport, like in O'Hare, where it shares the place with American. And then, yes, Southwest is also across town at Midway there. So that's part of it. Other issues, though, you mentioned labor. Uh, certainly labor relations is, is one piece of it. Uh, but more structurally, getting back to that. United also just has higher labor costs than American and Delta. And that's not something that a new CEO can just quickly fix. You know, that has to do with, for example, uh, more than anything, the fact that American and Delta simply went through bankruptcy more recently than United. So they kind of got to reset the clock, lower their labor costs more recently than United. And United is to a degree stuck with its labor costs, although even there, and this is an opportunity to sort of close the gap, uh, we'll probably see some labor cost convergence because United at least has a pilot contract that runs for another couple years. Uh, whereas, you know, Delta in particular uh, is an airline that, uh, you know, things seem to be getting worse with its pilots who voted down a proposed contract in one way or another. Uh, Delta is probably looking at some higher pilot costs coming forward. So that's actually an opportunity for United, just the fact that, you know, if Delta's costs rise, uh, United won't have the same gap in, in labor costs that it has today.
0: So was Gordon Bethune wrong when he said that a merge United and Continental... Uh, merging their networks would mean checkmate.
1: Yeah, famously, right? He said, uh, you know, you you put together Continental with, with you know with Houston and 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 Newark, great hubs for Continental historically, with United's network, you know, Chicago, San Francisco, uh, the, the Denver, and elsewhere, and 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 you'd have a checkmate, as, as you said, and no question, uh, this airline has continued to lag financially. So, right, was he wrong or, or just did did it have something to do with the execution? And, and it, it, it's it's probably some mix of the two. Uh, but it seems that, yeah, uh, you know, what United still lacks in its network for all the heft. And, I mean, there's no question that, you know, if you were starting an airline and you said, you know, what cities would I want? Look, United has the best position in New York because it has the only airport there in Newark where you can make a lot of money, both with short haul and long haul flying. And again, all those other big cities, uh, you know, hubs in Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Denver, Houston. Um, it, it, you know, it, it does seem like like the sort of this this dream team of hubs. And yet again, what it does lack are those hubs like Atlanta and Charlotte, where uh, it's just very dominant and, and uh, uh, you know really has an excellent position uh, in terms of certain traffic flows uh, that other hu- competitors just can't touch. So uh, Gordon Bethune, maybe not wrong, but um, perhaps overstated the case in terms of what merging those two networks would do and uh, thinking that the Whole would be vastly greater than the sum of its parts, hasn't really shown itself yet. Although, again, some of United's issues uh, probably having to do with the, the execution of the merger, and, and that's where those opportunities lie.
0: Are you surprised they didn't choose an airline guy as the new CEO? Oscar Munoz has a railroad bra- background after all.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, we mentioned Gordon Bethune just uh, there a moment ago. Here's a guy who's, who worked his way up through the airline industry and became that legendary CEO at Continental. But, you know, there's there's precedent for this. uh, uh a couple CEOs ago at Delta, for example, Leo Mullen uh, had, had come from the railroad industry. And, and a lot of people remember Mullen for the way he left Delta, uh, you know, an airline that wasn't in great shape in, in 2004 and, of course, ended up in bankruptcy a year later. But lesser remembered is the fact that you know, Leo Mullen's first three years were, were three of the most profitable in the history of, of Delta um, so you know he was somebody who who uh, came in and although you know the airline ended up having its issues uh, didn't seem like somebody who who, who uh, you know uh, who couldn't have been capable of uh, transitioning from especially another transport granted its surface rather than air and its cargo rather than passengers and all that but um, uh, yeah you know Oscar Munoz in his case, has been on the board uh, at United and at Continental before that. Again, a Continental, that was, that was a very successful airline. And so uh, you know, he knows the airline reasonably well, and he's coming from something that's not entirely different in terms of his executive experience. No reason to think that that in and of itself it would prevent him from being a successful CEO.
0: What do you think Munoz has to be good at for United to win?
1: Well, again, partly he could benefit from good timing. I mean, the prior management team, for all the mistakes that they made, uh, they were beginning to turn the airline around. And so, you know, if he could continue some of that momentum, the the operational improvements, and then layer on top of that, uh, for example, an improvement in labor relations, uh, uh, that's where he has a real opportunity here. He's going to get some benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, the labor groups, uh, the main ones all came out with press releases last week, welcoming the change. And they know that to maintain their own credibility, uh, you know, in in the eyes of the public, um, you know, if they're going to complain about one management team, they have to show that they're willing to work with another one. Uh, That's not to say they're going to, uh, uh, you know, live happily ever after necessarily. But, you know, they're going to have to come to the table and, and show that, uh, that they're willing to be reasonable. Uh, and he's going to have to show that management's willing to be reasonable. And um, you know, it's the kind of thing where even if what's on offer from both sides, doesn't change a lot. Just that change could be enough to, to sort of start swinging the pendulum and, 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 there is precedent for that in this industry, the airline industry. Don't forget, a very labor-intensive industry. You know, compared to others, it takes a lot more employees to uh, produce the same amount of revenue as as other companies in you know the the tech sector, for example. So this stuff matters, and and he has already been reaching out to those uh, labor groups. Been reaching out, by the way, to customers too. I know I, I got in my email inbox, and, and some other frequent flyers out there probably got this letter from Oscar Munoz, you know, saying what he's going to do. Uh, so so there too, uh, you know, customers, many of whom have been frustrated over the past few years uh, at United's um, operations. You know, they too might give him some benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know. In the end, uh, it, it's going to come down to the nuts and bolts of, of running the airline, getting it all right. Uh, you know, the, the, the honeymoon's only going to last so long. But uh, you know, if it lasts just long enough to where uh, the the perception of things changing uh, does you know, marry with the reality, which has to exist also, um, you know, that could be enough to start to uh, turn the corner. And 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 again, let's not forget he's he's fortunately operating in an environment that's very healthy you know the US airline industry so so the tide is rather high here uh, United already has something starting to swing in its favor and then if he can sort of uh, you know address those very poor labor relations and some of the customer service issues and so forth um, you know, he, has, he has an opportunity to succeed and perhaps uh, you know, to be remembered as, as a very good CEO when the uh, when, when the book about United is, is written some years from now
0: all right it will be interesting. Uh, Meanwhile, in Airline Weekly this week, we published our quarterly earnings scoreboard, which ranks the world's airlines by various measures of profitability. I see 61 airlines top to bottom, and the top four all have something in common. In fact, 10 of the top 15 all have the same thing in common.
1: They sure do, uh, ranking them in this case by operating margin, as you mentioned before, uh, in a different context. Sort of the best way to compare airlines of very different sizes. Yeah, the, the top four airlines of, as you said, there's 61 all U.S. airlines. Uh, you know, That's noteworthy because if you were looking at a ranking like this uh, just a few years ago, uh, that would not have been the case. You know, you would have seen uh, a lot of developing world airlines toward the top. But, of course, things have changed in the world. Uh, you know, it has to do with just everything going on with oil prices and commodity prices falling. And, yeah, uh, you know, the top four airlines in the world, uh, let's see, Allegiant, Alaska, Southwest and Spirit. Uh, and, you know, remarkably, as you said, 10 of the top 15. In other words, the, the 10 sort of mainline U.S. carriers, all among the top 15 in the world, you know, the, the lowest ranked of them, Hawaiian, with a 13 percent operating margin, uh, still better off than You know, all but all but uh, a handful of airlines around the world. And then when you look at the bottom of the list, you know, that, too, very different from several years ago. You see an airline like Gol in Brazil, uh, you know, a low cost carrier that's that's regarded as a well-managed carrier, but just unable to escape uh, you know, the 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 currency and economic issues in Brazil, uh, the fourth least profitable airline in the world, putting up big loss margins. And you see a lot of airlines there uh, from a region that you know, was very successful not too many years ago, but now at the bottom airlines from Southeast Asia. Yes,
0: but there's one Southeast Asian airline that isn't anywhere near the bottom. Not near the
1: bottom at all. Cebu Pacific. Remember, I said those top four were the U.S. carriers. You say, well, what's number five? Yeah, of all things, Cebu Pacific, which is a, a low-cost airline uh, in uh, in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines in its case. And uh, yeah, right there near the top. And by the way, a quarter earlier, it was actually at the very top of the list. Cebu doing very, very well in a part of the world where uh, other airlines are, are really struggling.
0: So what's going so right for Cebu in a region where things are going so wrong for so many other airlines?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing is that, Jason, when you drill down a little deeper, uh, you know, I'm talking uh, about Southeast Asia, generally speaking. uh, And, you know, for most people around the world, that's a useful way to uh, to to group airlines by by region. But. Within Southeast Asia, there are different trends there, and, and one thing is that uh, you know, I've used the term currency several times here in the past few minutes. No coincidence, uh, you know, currency uh, right up there with fuel prices in terms of uh, impact on airlines' costs. Well, uh, and, and revenue opportunities as well. You know, Philippines actually sort of different from some others. It's its currency has held up reasonably well. And so as you have other airlines uh, in that region, many parts of the world, Um, that suddenly find themselves essentially paying far more for jet fuel because it's priced in U.S. dollars and for their aircraft leases and mortgages because they're priced in U.S. dollars. uh, You know, if you're an airline in the Philippines, you don't have uh, that happening. The economy holding up reasonably well there. And so even uh, Cebu's legacy competitor, uh, Philippine Airlines, which you know historically has not been among the world's prof- more profitable airlines uh, is doing reasonably well. So so part of it is just that the operating environment in that specific country. Isn't all that bad, uh, which, by the way, Cebu itself contributed to the improvement of the operating mar- uh, environment by by doing what? By buying another airline, Tiger Air Philippines. So consolidation. You know, when we think about what's helped in the U.S., certainly uh, uh, contributing to, uh, to to the turnaround in other regions. So that has happened there in a country with not too many airlines. All of a sudden, you remove one independent competitor, certainly helping uh, a reasonably well-managed airline. One thing, Jason, that I think some people might look at if they know a little bit about Cebu and draw conclusions that you might have to be careful with, Cebu has actually started a, a low-cost long-haul operation. Uh, and that, uh, by all appearances, is not what's driving the profits. Uh, and uh, we've, we've had this discussion before, you know, low-cost long-haul, all kinds of challenges associated with that. Uh, so Cebu, uh, rather clearly, is, is really running up the score with its short-haul operation and sort of struggling to turn the corner on, on long-haul. Profiting not because of that low-cost long-haul operation, but despite it.
0: Also in Airline Weekly this week, we talk about airlines that don't fall neatly into categories like low-cost or legacy. Some people like to call these hybrid airlines. And we note that what's unusual about Alaska Airlines is what you mentioned a moment ago. The fact it's one of the most profitable airlines in the world.
1: Yeah, you know, and I'm not crazy about that term hybrid, but, you know, what people mean is that, you know, they're airlines that, you know, they sort of have, oh, lowish costs, but, but you know, revenues that are somewhat decent. And the history has been that a lot of airlines around the world sort of tell that story, you know, hey, we're going to have the best of both worlds. We're, you know, we're going to kind of win on cost and kind of win on revenues and, and, and put up big profits. And the problem is they don't very often seem to do it. Uh, You you look at an airline like, oh, Virgin Australia would be one that's sort of struggled to be consistently profitable and so many others around the world. Air Berlin, another. Um, And and yet, yeah, um, Alaska Airlines. Uh, is one that if you just kind of look at it, looks like one of those airlines. Uh, you know, it it it, it has lower costs than many of its competitors, and yet it has a business class cabin and and uh, you know lots and lots of various partners, all these complexities and the rest of it. Um, and and you say why is it so successful, whereas an airline like oh. Uh, you know Virgin America let's say and we mentioned that in the issue that they're one that sort of puts up the mediocre profits that are more typical of, of these kinds of airlines what's the difference and really Jason I mean it, it's its it's more than one thing you know one thing is that that you know it, it although it's it's not you know an ultra low-cost carrier Alaska has very aggressively unbundled its product I mean you know it, it provides those amenities that I mentioned but it charges for them uh, it has you um, uh, aggressively densified its cabins, adding rows of seats. So yeah, there's that generous legroom in the business class cabin, but, uh, you know, in the economy cabin, they've, they've added seats. Um, and, and, and the other thing more than anything else is, is, uh, network, uh, you know, Alaska airlines, unlike others, uh, you know, really has a franchise in a part of the country, uh, you know, a big hub in Seattle, a nice hub in Portland, uh, um where you know e- local economies are doing very well and where it is the dominant airline uh, you know, customers like it uh, that's not always enough to profit <laughs> just because customers like you because you know, customers like Virgin America too and it's not among the most profitable but uh, the difference is that Virgin America doesn't really dominate any of its markets uh, whereas Alaska Airlines does and so it takes a revenue premium so so that's one where you put it all together those rather low costs, um, but then, with uh, you know the, the densification of the cabins and the unbundling, uh, but then also those revenue premiums, which yeah have have a lot to do with its product, but also just the fact that it has very convenient schedules, um, and uh, it's one that does actually manage to uh, to turn the trick to, uh, to 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 be an airline that fulfills what so many others ha- have talked about o- over the years, but really struggled to achieve.
0: And our last item of the day. Delta and American ended their interline agreement. What's that all
1: about? Yeah, kind of weird. You know, um, interline agreements are the most basic form of airline cooperation. I mean, the fiercest competitors around the world, uh, you know, who don't see eye and eye on anything, generally have interline agreements uh, so that they can transfer bags between the airlines uh, or reaccommodate each other's customers, and and that seems to be the crux of it. Uh, uh, you know. Um, Delta um, is is running a very reliable airline. We talked earlier about United's issues. Delta really at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, it, it, its completion percentages, its on-time numbers are, are phenomenal. It's, it's losing very few bags. It's proud of that. Um, and in uh, what you can only call a little bit of a, sort of a, a snooty uh, press release uh, last week explaining this, it, it said that, you know, it's having to reaccommodate far more of Americans' passengers than the other way around. In other words, Delta's saying, look, we don't delay flights. We don't cancel flights. So we don't send very many passengers over to them. They're sending a lot more to us. Um, now, what's strange about that, Jason, is that um, when you accept another airline's passengers, you do get revenue for that. Um, And it it can be kind of a useful way to backfill, you know, basically to, to, to get some revenue for empty seats, because generally you're talking about seats that were empty up until shortly before departure. And, you know, now this other airline's helping you fill those seats. So, you know, was it all about that? Um, well maybe partly or maybe Delta is just kind of calculating you know what if we do this we'll lose a little bit of that revenue um, but we'll force passengers to make a choice uh, you know if somebody's flying from you know, Dallas to Atlanta and it's it's, it's American or, or Delta um, you know they uh, if somebody's gonna fly American uh, can't count on the fact that hey in the end if something happens to an American flight I can fly Delta instead. Um, They'll they'll have to make that uh, that choice. Uh, The Dallas Morning News actually uh, referenced as well an internal memo to employees um, uh, at American that seemed to point to Delta, perhaps related to all of that, to the operational issues and so forth, um, trying to just negotiate a deal where they would have gotten more revenue than sort of the standard uh, rates that airlines agree to around the world. So probably. Uh, some combination of all that, uh, you know, we'll see if, if they come back to the table and and, and agree to something. But um, but again, very unusual. That's just one of those things. Generally, you know, competitors, they they have just like they have employee travel agreements, you know, where employees can can uh, uh, can fly you know, standby on, on, on competitors as long as there's a seat. Um, you know, same thing with these interline agreements, typically among at least legacy airlines around the world. Uh, But Delta, as it has done with so many other things uh, in the past few years, uh, kind of kind of rewriting the playbook. All right. Let's cue the outro music. Seth, appreciate it, as always.
0: And thank you for stopping by the Airline Weekly Lounge.